do want to remind you that if you have children who would like to uh, go to children's church, this is the moment at which they, oh, there they go, they're exiting even now. And so, good. And if anyone else has yet to go, please feel free to, uh, to join them. I'm not sure, I know it's Thomas, I'm not sure who else is down there today, but uh, we're happy to be able to have your children experience the Word of God downstairs today if you'd like. Well, in John chapter 14, you may be recalling to your mind something of that chapter because there are some very famous verses. Some of the most famous in the entire Gospel of John are found at the very beginning of John chapter 14. But just a little bit later down in John chapter 14, one of the disciples, the disciple named Philip, made a very important request of the Lord Jesus. And this is what he asked. He said, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And you might remember, as you recall that passage, that Jesus responded by teaching his disciples that those who have seen him know what the Father is like because the Father is in him and he is in the Father. In the words of the author of the book of Hebrews, quote, he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of of his nature. Philip didn't quite get this. He didn't understand what it meant to see the Father, but he wasn't entirely wrong. Jesus' own purpose, his whole life, was actually the answer to this question. He was all about making the Father known. And that's my purpose this morning as well. My purpose is to show us this morning the Father through Jesus, to give us a chance to revel in his love and to show how coming to the Father, our Father in heaven, changes everything about us. Our scripture this morning is actually in Matthew chapter 6. We've been talking about these four words at the beginning of what we call the Lord's Prayer for, well, this will be the sixth time we've talked about them. But we're going to do it one more time this morning, and I want to read to you the text beginning in chapter 6 of Matthew and verse 9. It says this, Jesus is speaking and teaching his disciples how to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This morning, again, taking those first four words and asking the question, really, what does it mean to be loved by a heavenly Father? What does it mean to actually know God as our Father? And And I want to point to you that the model prayer that Jesus has given us is actually showing us the nature of God's fatherhood by its very implications. So the fact that we can, in prayer, approach the almighty God, maker of heaven and earth, and call him father is in itself a revelation of the character of our relationship with God. Stop and think about that just for a moment. Again, think this. The fact that you and I are both invited and commanded to come before the God of the universe, the one who made you, who knows everything about you, who even knows your thoughts, this God, to come before him as 
father is really something that's beyond comprehension. But that's what prayer teaches us, that we can do this, that we have, well, that we have access to the king. We have access to the king. And built into the prayer are several of the, of the truths that help us to understand what this access really looks like. And the first one is here at the beginning of the prayer. Jesus says, our Father in heaven. And then he, he tells us how to ask, how to speak to God, what to ask for. And the first thing that we ask for, kind of interestingly, is that God's name be regarded as holy. Now, don't worry, we're not going to walk through the whole prayer in detail this morning, but I want to show you why these requests, how these requests show us that we have access to God, our Father. So when you come to God and you first apply this truth, that you actually ask God for his name to be regarded as holy, I wonder what you think you're asking for. And, and that's a big topic for a sermon that I'm looking forward to preaching in the future. <laughs> but I want to show you this much this morning to show the access you have to the Father. What we're really saying when we say, your name be regarded as holy, is that God is at the center of his world and that everything we are and everything in the world is aligned with him, not the other way around. In other words, God is at the very, may God be seen as he really is at the center of the world. To petition God that his name be held in highest regard is really to set your mind on the truth and your heart on the delight of who God actually is. Now, it's important to be aligned with reality. I remember years ago, a uh, relative that had just been through a surgery and had been given some kind of medication that wasn't working well in her system. And she was seeing little green people in the room with us. Maybe you've known something like that or even experienced it yourself. To not be aligned with reality is a really bad thing. Those little green people weren't there. And, but we live life often as if that kind of a thought were really true, that somehow we're, we're living in a world, an alternate reality that is really an unreality. God gives us the chance to ask at the very beginning of this prayer, come to your Father and ask that your life be aligned with the great reality that God himself is at the center of his world and align your life with him. A long time ago, Several years back, uh, our family uh, took a trip out to the peninsula, and uh, we took a little road going up from Port Angeles there on the peninsula, up, 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 up a gravel road, winding, winding, winding for miles until we got to the top of one of the front in the range of the Olympics called Blue Mountain. And as we got to Blue Mountain, we anticipated what we thought we would be able to see. We would be able to see uh, to the north, you see out across the Strait of Juan de Fuca, all the way to Canada. To the east, well, you see back here to Mount Baker and all the things that are here on the mainland. And, and to the south, well, you see deeper into the whole range of the Olympics. And still further to the west, you see more of the Olympics, including Hurricane Ridge. And, but there were clouds across the entire vista. So we walked in cloud. And... And um, when you ask God's name to be regarded as holy, what you're actually asking is that God lift the clouds of your understanding so that you see him as he really is. 
so that you get a vista that's actually much better, much brighter, much more glorious than seeing all of the things that we might have seen on a day when the sun was shining and the sky was clear from the top of Blue Mountain. You're asking that you would know and understand the truth. You're asking for the centrality of God's person to take the center in your life. You're asking that you be put aside and that your Father be enthroned in every one of your heart's thoughts and decisions and in the middle of your heart. He is central. So the question is whether or not you're building your life on what is true and what is real. So the very first thing that Jesus tells us, essentially, there's much more to say on that, but the very first thing he tells us is that we can petition God, the maker of heaven and earth, whose name is holy, to help us to align our lives with what is true and what is real. What an amazing idea. The very baseline of our needs, God says, come and ask the king. You have access. Now, I don't know about you, but so many times I find that I am building my life on other ideas, ideas of my own making, frankly, selfish ideas that center on my own significance or what I want to get. But all of that is really just a clouded view because it's not true. The mountains, by the way, were not, uh, had not faded from existence because I couldn't see them. And so this first petition is saying, show me the truth of the existence of the true and living God. So we have this chance, this access to God to ask him for the most foundational of all of our needs. But then he goes on to say, your kingdom come, your will be done. So if in the first we're aligning our lives with reality, here we're asking God for a place of flourishing, a place where we can grow and be productive. You know, what is God's kingdom going to be like? Well, um, you could say this, that it's the rule of the perfect king over a perfect domain. It's the reign of righteousness where no evil enters. It's where life and endless life is the only rule of the day and where death is dead. It's beyond the best of the very best things we could ever imagine or hope for. This is what the kingdom of God actually is. So when we're asking for the establishment of the kingdom of God, we're asking for all that we could ever hope or dream to be reality in our experience. You know what it happens when a good government is in power or when a bad government is in power. The book of Proverbs actually lays it out very clearly. He says, when the righteous increase or are in authority, the people rejoice, but when the wicked rule, the people groan. The government of God means peace. It means prosperity. It means security. It means all the things that we want human government to do for us, but that it can never actually provide I wonder if you ever feel in this life like you're fighting an uphill battle with every step. I mean, we need more rain, but then we get floods. Or, or you can't get the grass to grow where you want it in the bare spots in your lawn, but you can't keep it out of the flower beds. <laughs> this is what's happened. When God's kingdom comes, when the Father's kingdom comes in fullness, everything will work right. Everything will work the way that it was intended to work for the very first time. And so Jesus urges us, 
You have access to the Father to ask for the most baseline of your needs, that your understanding be aligned with the reality of who God is. And then he says, you also have access to the Father, your Father the King, to ask for a place of flourishing, a place where everything work works the way that it should. And then he goes on to talk to us about the things we can ask at the very, at the very simplest of our needs, the most basic of our needs. He says, give us this day our daily bread. So Jesus starts with the biggest of our needs, that we align our, our reality with what truly is. And then he moves on to our need for a place to flourish. And then he says, you can ask him for the simplest of all of your needs. We need food. We don't go very long without it. And maybe if some of you <laughs> skipped breakfast, you're already feeling a little hangry. And, and, um, and you know you don't go very far without food. And so Jesus is saying, you can actually come to the king, get this, to the king of heaven and just ask for some bread. That, that you have access to the throne room of the king of the universe, the Lord of lords, the king of kings, the God of all creation, to ask for a slice of bread. And yet that's the level of your access to God. You can ask him for the most fundamental of your needs, that you need to really understand what's true and right. You can ask him for that place where you flourish and where the kingdom of God is known and understood and loved. And you can ask him for the simplest and most basic of all the needs that you have. Later on in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus argues in chapter 7, that a, uh, even a man, a father, an earthly father, would not give his son a stone when he asked for a loaf of bread. And he wouldn't give him a snake when he asked for a fish. And he goes, he says, how much more do you think your father in heaven will give you what you ask for? So come, the idea is, underlying the whole thought of the prayer, come and Ask because you have access to the king. It's really a little bit hard to grasp that in the midst of God's government of the universe, in heaven, where the enemy of our souls is accusing us day and night before him, in the presence of angels whose power dwarfs the most powerful militaries the world has ever known, constantly heralded by seraphim crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. The whole earth is full of his glory. In the midst of all of this, your father is listening for your mumbled prayer to him about a slice of bread. He's watching for the slightest turning of your eye to him for help. It's unimaginable. It's unthinkable. And yet it's true. I, I love the way that um, theologian Tim Keller has helped us to think about this. He says, the only person who dares to wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. He continues, we have that kind of access. Jesus continues in the prayer, and just to be brief, he says, we can ask God to forgive our debts. Who doesn't see in our past an insurmountable debt that we owe to God because of sin? We need forgiveness, and we can ask for it from our Father the King. Lead us not into temptation. Which of us doesn't face temptation to sin? We need guidance 
Deliver us from evil. Who has not known the deception of the evil one who tells us lies to snare us? And which of us is adequate to meet those lies which have caught every generation of men from Adam onward? We need to be delivered from evil. So Jesus in this prayer highlights all the things that we need most, even the most basic, the simplest needs that we have, and he tells us to ask God for them. To ask God because he is our Father, and because he is our Father, we have access to the King. Really, Jesus is highlighting all the things that we need most. Uh, He's saying we have access to a God whose power is limitless, to the God whose resources are boundless, to the God whose wisdom is fathomless. He says, you can knock on the door of the king at three o'clock in the morning and expect to be greeted by your father, even when it's just for a, a nightly sip of water. Or you can just make sure that he's still there in the darkness of your present circumstances. Your Father loves for you to come to Him. We have access to the King. That's the very structure of the idea of this prayer, that you, you and I, share access to God in the most essential ways, and we can come to Him. What a Father. What an unimaginable reality. But there's more, because... We are remembered by our God. We're remembered by our God because we have a Father in heaven. It might come to your mind to think, well, it's all well and good that God is listening when I call, but I wonder if he ever thinks about me when I'm not thinking about him. Because if you're like me, there's an awful lot of the time when, truth be told and sad to say, I'm not thinking about him. So in when here's the question, essentially. In my unfaithfulness in remembering him, does that like mess things up so that he quits remembering me? And, and I want to show you from the Sermon on the Mount that is the context for everything we're talking about this morning that, in fact, your father remembers you whether or not you are remembering him You heard some of the verses that Nathan and CJ read for us just a little bit ago. You heard about the fact that God actually says, I have have engraved you on the palms of my hands. That's the idea, by the way, of being tattooed. So you're indelibly marked on the palms of God. What an amazing thought that you have a God who never forgets you. No matter what you are doing, you are remembered by your God. But here in the Sermon on the Mount... Over in chapter 5 and in verses 45 to 48, you may remember that uh, Jesus says, uh, in verse 44, I guess, I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Now listen for this. He says, do this so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now listen to the description of your Father. This is your Father, and I want to show you how he's not forgetting you. So that you may be sons, verse 45, of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Now listen, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is 
perfect. Now, at first glance, I think you might be saying, that's great that God loves his enemies. What does that mean to me about God not forgetting me? But maybe you're putting the connection together. God never forgets even his enemies to do them good. How much more those who are his own beloved children. Can God forget you? It's inconceivable that a God who even remembers his enemies to do them good would not do what is loving and best to those who are his own children. And then over in chapter 6 and verses 4 and 6, we understand that not only does our Father love his enemies, which, by the way, is kind of a measure of his perfection. You hear that Jesus is saying that it's a measure of his perfection, his completeness, his wholeness. So Jesus is saying the Father is perfect and even loves his enemies. But here now he says in chapter 6, your Father sees in secret. So those moments when you think, I don't think God can see me. I think I'm invisible to him. I think that I have, I'm dwelling in an obscurity too great and too dark for God to see into. We're told two times in verses 4 and 6 in chapter 6 that your Father sees in secret. Yes, now that is in a particular context here of saying that the Father knows what you are doing and rewards in secret. I know that. But the principle that's undergirding this is that there is no place that you can go where your Father does not have his eye on you before you even whisper your concern. He knows and he cares. Now, I know that in the past we've talked a little bit about the purpose of prayer and we've talked about the fact that prayer is really not about us informing God of something that he did not know. We kind of treat it like that sometimes. Hey, Father, I hope you're noticing down here that I've got this real need and I'm, I'm a little concerned that maybe you haven't caught up to speed yet. Please, 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 please look at me. But he's already looking at you. So what is prayer for? And we've said that prayer is really for the purpose of you entering into a fellowship with your Father in heaven so that you are actually coming into the awareness of the need that he already knew that you had. And you're bringing all the power and all the grace of your Father to bear on your particular situation. Now, I want to show you how this fact that God sees in secret, that he knows things ahead of time, actually is a statement on his fatherly care. So, first of all, he's never surprised by our requests. He's never surprised by our requests. Secondly, he, he understands what we ourselves don't understand that we need. Romans 8 will teach us that. We have been very close to that passage if we've not already been there. This is what it says in verse 26 of Romans 8. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with, for us with groanings too deep for words. So, so when we're praying, we're coming to the God who is our Father who understands what we ourselves don't know that we need. And then we, the implication is that he hears our real needs through our broken requests. Through our broken requests. I, I will, <laughs> I, you know, I think sometimes we pray for things like, Lord, I sure need some money. But he knows what you really need is character. And so he's going to work because he's your father for the purpose of what is actually best for your life. I still remember uh, this. I think I've laughed about it for probably about 40 years now. Um, the, uh, this, I was in a choir in the high school I was at. And um, this one young man was going to England, I think it was, to play soccer. And so we were, for some reason, having a prayer time about this. And someone prayed about him going to 
<laughs> the wrong place entirely. Wouldn't it be funny in one sense if God just said, oh, I'm sending him to Tasmania? But he didn't. He, because God knows what we're actually saying. So we're praying, and sometimes very brokenly, for even the wrong thing, maybe for the wrong location, maybe even not for the right person. But the Holy Spirit is working to interpret because he, our God, is our Father. He hears our real needs through our broken requests. What a great God. What a, what a great God. And he finally wants to help us to ask for what pleases him. He wants to help us ask for what really pleases him. Your father sees in secret. In chapter 6, Jesus goes on to bring this right down to the most essential of our needs. In chapter 6, in verses 24 through 33, Jesus is saying he's already said that God sees your enemies and he cares for them. He says he sees your needs and he cares for them. And now he says he takes us to the very smallest things to prove that. The very smallest things. He says, take a look at the birds. God sees every one of them and cares. Uh, he says, take a look at the flowers. God sees every one of them and he dresses them in finery beyond that of the finest king. Last year, uh, Melissa and I went down to Southern California to um, do a job down there. It was after all the rain they'd had. And, uh, and we drove through hills in some places that were literally covered in gold. You know, that wasn't because some Southern California gardener had gone up there and taken care of those fields finally. It was because God, who actually dresses every single flower, had covered the hills in gold. He, he sees every one of those flowers. I don't know how many billions of flowers we were seeing. I, I couldn't even begin to calculate what that would look like. But God, your Father, our Father was dressing every one of them in a splendor beyond that of Solomon, is what Jesus is saying here. He's luxuriously dressed each one and put them together in a chorus that sings to his undying praise. And so, if he cares for the birds, the reasoning is, and if he cares for the flowers, what do you think your Father does for you? You don't have to worry that God might have not have his hearing aids tuned up. He's already listening to your thoughts and the intentions of your heart. You don't have to worry that he might have lost his glasses. He sees you in your most secret place. You don't have to worry that his intentions toward you are not good. He demonstrates his perfection in loving even his enemies. How much then does he love you? His own children bought by the blood of his son. Johnny Erickson Tata, in an interview recently published in a book by Tim Cassie called A Day's Journey, gives a beautiful description of what it means to come to God as a child, even especially in suffering and in need. This is what she said in this interview with Tim Cassie. I often say that people in situations like mine were not always looking for answers. We think we are when we ask, why? But we're really looking for somebody to tell us, everything's going to be okay, sweetheart. You know, like a little child being lifted up and her daddy patting her on the back and saying, there, there, sweetheart. Daddy's here. It's okay. 
Johnny says, I resonate with that. We want God to be like that because we want God to be constantly good. And we want him to say, sweetheart, I'm here. Daddy's here. Everything is going to be okay. And, she says, answers don't even matter at that point. All that matters is that you believe God is going to make everything okay, no matter what that okay pans out to be. It could be pretty brutal for months and even years to come, or as in my case, that I never got healed. But still, he is in the middle of all of that. The picture I have up on the screen here is from Corinth, Greece. We took it when we visited the Acro Corinth, and this is a part of the Acro Corinth. It's an ancient fortress high up above the city of Corinth and above the Mediterranean Sea. You have a fortress that is so much better. You have a fortress that is so much stronger. The impregnable walls of your fortress are the arms of your Father in heaven. And the banner that flies over those ramparts is love. Take refuge in your Father. You have access. You have access to the King, and He never forgets you. Because God is our Father, because God is our Father, there are some implications that flow out of that reality. We can revel in the fact that we are the loved of God, that there is nothing that can separate us from His love, that we are children of the Most High God. But because of that, we can live entirely differently. And the first thing that I want to point out to you is because God is our Father, we don't have to look elsewhere for security. We don't have to look elsewhere for security, and because we don't have to look elsewhere for security, it means we don't have to be in control. Isn't this a great illustration? We, we don't have to be in control. What a great thing, because God, our Father, is actually in control of everything. You know, the security of being loved by our Father is really the only environment in which we can stop hiding and compensating and performing, in which we can stop worrying and controlling and clamoring for attention. Because God is our loving Father, we can actually address our real problems because we know that God already knows, and He loves us anyway. Because we have a Father in heaven, we don't have to look elsewhere for security. That means we don't have to be in Control. So, may I point out to you that very often faith will not lead you to pat answers for difficult problems? You just heard what Johnny said. Very often he won't just give you some quick, easy solution, but he will, he will lead you to himself. He will lead you to himself. He'll lead you to your Father in heaven. This security that we have in God our Father leads to the absolute certainty that whatever our problem is and however long it lasts, our Father is in perfect control. Nothing gets to us that doesn't come through our Father. He sets the bounds of every trial. He says this far and no farther. He, and because we're secure in Him, we don't have to trust our own measures to keep us safe. 
we're secure in Him. Our Father determines how much we can take, how long we can take it, how often we can endure it, how hard the trial may be, how painful the experience might be, how far we can go, how many of them we can handle. He handles all of this. We don't have to take control because we're safe in our Father, safe enough to let Him do His work. Now, if you're manipulating people or circumstances to try to get what you want, it's a good signal to check and see if you're actually experiencing the security of God as your Father. And if you're like me, you're going to find that there are a few holes in your experience in your life where, yes, I'm trying to take God the Father's spot and try to make myself safe on so many levels that really only the Father in heaven can handle and manage. If somewhere you're believing deep inside, if I don't take care of it, nobody else will. It's a good time to reevaluate what you think about God, your Father. Now, one thing that happens to all of us tests us all the time on this security, and that is change. Because change always presses us into something that makes our security wobble just a little bit. Even positive changes are stressful. Here, here are some of those big changes that they list in those lists you read. New job, loss of, jo- loss of a job, getting married, getting divorced, moving to a new home, retirement, illness, financial issues. And again, you see that change in general, even when it's a positive change, can actually end up being something that makes people feel insecure Change is coming in your life. You will take this test. You might take it this afternoon. Are you ready? Are you so secure in your Father's love that nothing can shake you? This fortress that I was showing you has literally been conquered and reconquered multiple times through the centuries that it's been in existence. And then it's been built and rebuilt over those times. But what does that tell you about a fortress like that? As grand and imposing and astonishing as it is, it's not very safe. And and now it's a ruins because a fortress like this is so out of date with the kinds of things that current militaries can do. That's not the way It is with your father. You have a security that is beyond all that you could imagine. Oswald Chambers says this. He says, all our fret and worry is caused by calculating without God. Hear that again. All our fret and worry is caused by calculating without God. You're doing the equation and you leave out the only thing that actually makes the equation work. He continues, the secret of Christian quietness is not indifference but the knowledge that God is my Father. He loves me, and I shall never think of anything that he'll forget. With this knowledge, Chambers says, worry becomes an impossibility. Another writer, Ed Welch, a biblical counselor and author, says this, Jesus is not worried ever. Why? Because God, his Father, and our Father is in heaven He loves us more than he loves the birds and the flowers, and everything is his. If there are any anxieties to be had, says Welch, they are about tomorrow, and those anxieties are his to deal with, too. He's already into the details of the troubles of tomorrow. 
we don't have to be in control. And that's good, because we aren't in control. But your Father in heaven is in control. And so you can look to him, the God who is your security, your fortress, your refuge, and find in him all that you need to make you safe in every circumstance of life, no matter how difficult it may be. Because God is our Father, we also don't have to look elsewhere for approval. And that means that we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to fear. When I was in high school, um, uh, there were... Uh, some very interesting, I'm sure to you young folks, very interesting styles. There, everyone wanted to wear polo shirts and Levi's 501 blue jeans and Argyle socks and spray topsider boat shoes. And that was what was acceptable at my school. And we weren't fashionistas, but eventually I, I, uh, I really wanted to at least look a little bit like the other high school kids. And I particularly wanted one of those pairs of Levi's 501 button fly shrink to fit jeans. <laughs> and I remember my parents taking me to the department store in Auburn, California to get them. And I remember the white boat shoes that I wore until they wore out. And they were important to me. And I have to be honest, I still like Argyle socks. Um, but I remember other ways that were maybe more significant that I cra in ways that I craved approval from from my classmates and other people. I, I worked hard in school so that I could meet with approval. But that really, of course, doesn't get you approval with everybody. So then I wished that I could be a part of the club of athletes, the jocks in the school. But that didn't work out. And it, because we never find approval that's really lasting or really stable in anyone but God. And so because we have a Father in heaven, we can know that we're approved by him, and that, here's it, that is enough. Now, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't wear Argyle socks, but it does mean that we have to ask about the motivations for why we are doing those things. Am I doing that just so that I can fit in, just because, really because I'm not sure that I'm okay with God? Which presses us to ask what we think of our Father in heaven as we get older, we do different things to try to seek approval. We, we're a little more sophisticated than just what we wear. We do still identify with that some, we, but we do things like we want to succeed in our job, or we want to have, uh, have a nice house, or we want to travel in the right circles, or we want to have the right friends. And we can even defend some of those things with plausible, laudable answers, high-sounding reasons like, well, I want a better house in order to be able to take better care of my family. Or I need a nicer car because I don't want my kids to duck when we drive, drive down Main Street. Or I need a better job because I don't want to be a burden in my old age. But deep down, beneath many of these reasons, so oftentimes what we're actually doing is seeking for approval. We're seeking to be respectable. We're wanting people to say that we're okay, to think well of us. And here's the thing you need to know. Whatever it is that you're seeking approval from, that thing is either God or his rival. Let, let me say that to you one more time. It, whether it is, whatever it is that you are seeking approval from, that thing either is God or is his rival. You could say it 
is his enemy. And so the question we have to ask is, what really am I seeking approval from? What, whose approval, if we really took an honest inventory right now, whose approval is most valuable to me? Who, who do I care about most? Who comes to my mind when it's like, I sure want them to like me? Uh, our search for approval is often identified by its counterpart, and that is fear. We're afraid that people won't like us. We're afraid that we won't be accepted. We're afraid that we'll say the wrong thing at the wrong time instead of focusing on simply speaking the truth in love anyway. We're afraid that people are saying things behind our backs. We're afraid that our friends are only tolerating us and that our admirers are only placating us and that our work really isn't good enough. We're just afraid. And we're afraid because we're seeking approval from something other than God. This fear in the Bible has a special name, and you might know what it is. It's called the fear of man. The fear of man. And it's really the indicator that you're seeking approval from people. It's in direct opposition to the fear of God. Fearing God leads us, watch, fearing God leads us to worshiping him. Can you guess what fearing man leads you to do? To worshiping him, man. Years ago, a preacher was wrestling with this fear of man, and he wrote this. Preachers, by the way, struggle with this a lot, at least if I'm any test. I remember, he says, preaching in the early years of my ministry, coming off the platform and standing down front with the hope that at least a few people would come forward and tell me how great the message was. When God started dealing with me regarding the fear of man in my life, every time I preached, I would come down off the platform, and before anybody could speak to me, I would have to go to my knees on the front pew and say, God, was that okay with you? It really doesn't matter whether the church likes me or keeps me. The only thing that matters is, was it okay with you? He continues, he says, I remember during this time of God dealing with the fear of man in my life, leaving the motel in Florida to go to preach for a large church. On the way to that church, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, Dell, if you preach your heart out this morning and there's no movement, nobody raises a hand, nobody gets saved, nobody gets right with God, nobody moves, there are no tears, is that all right with you? If it brings more glory to me? The fear of man lays a snare, and it lays it even for preachers. The snare is for the soul of the person who seeks approval from anyone other than our Father in heaven. Don't get caught in this trap of the flesh. Don't surrender to really what is a subtle form of idolatry. Here in the Sermon on the Mount, we get a very clear picture of the fear of man, and Jesus sternly warns against it in these words in Matthew chapter 6 at the beginning of the passage, the very chapter that we're studying here. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness, here it is, before other people in order to be seen by them. Because the religious leaders of Jesus' day were seeking approval, approval and approbation from people. They were fearing men, and they just wanted men to fear them. They wanted their approval. They wanted them to be, they wanted to be lifted up in the eyes of their fellows. They were deep into the snare, trapped by their idolatrous lust for approval from people instead of God. But let me tell you this, because your Father in heaven loves you so much, he will not let you run into that snare. The ferocity of his love will not tolerate competitors. 
He will do whatever it takes to protect you from the self-harm that you would inflict by holding on to the fear of man. And he gives us the antidote, an antidote that we can cling to. It's in Romans chapter 8, right where Pastor Kyle has been preaching. He says, Paul writing, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. If God your Father approves of you, if God, your Father, approves of you, then you're approved by the only one that really matters. Because God is our Father in heaven, we also don't have to look elsewhere for significance. And that means that we don't have to build our own legacy. The thing that makes your life worthwhile to God or worthwhile is your connection to God. It's your connection to your Father in heaven. All the things that you think are most valuable, all the things that, think you, that make you think you're standing out and doing something that is useful, the, reason, the reasons why people remember you or call you successful aren't really reasons at all. That's what Jeremiah tells us in Jeremiah chapter 9 and verses 23 through 24. Listen to what he writes Speaking for the Lord, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this. All those things that we count as successful, wisdom, might, riches, he says, no, that's not the source of your boasting. Boast in this, that you understand and know me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, says the Lord. What matters to you, what really matters, is that you are your father's child and that you're now in his family. Jesus reiterates that very concept in Luke chapter 10 when he sent out 72 missionaries into the towns and villages around, and they came back, and they were reporting what had happened, and it was the, one of the greatest reports you could imagine. If you were a missionary, this is the report you would like to be giving. They, they uh, said, even the spirits, even the spirits were subject to us. You don't get better than that for a missionary review. Even the spirits were subject to us, and Jesus gives them this admonition. Listen to what he says. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Catch the first thing. Jesus affirms that what they said was actually true. The spirits, the demons, were subject to them in Jesus' name. You were, in that sense, very successful. But listen, he continues, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. Don't make this the focus of your attention. Don't put all your security in this. Don't make your, consider yourself significant because the demons were subject to you in my name. No, that's not the source of your real significance. That's not what makes you really valuable. Rejoice, he says, that your names are written in heaven. The whole of your significance is wrapped up in who you are in relationship to God. Is he, in fact, your father? If he is your father, that is significant enough. Alexander McLaren, a commentator, notes this. The names written on earth, he says, 
are swiftly obliterated like a child's scrawl on the sand, which is washed away by the next tide or covered up by the next storm that blows about the sand hills. Yeah, that's earthly significance. It's just about that worthwhile. It really doesn't matter how deeply you can etch your name in the sands of time. It will not last. That's because the world is passing away along with its desires, as John tells us. Real significance, real lasting value is found only by the one who does the will of God. This one abides forever, John tells us. We're told that the names of citizens of a city or state were accustomed to be written in a book or a register in these times. The question that Jesus is pressing is, is your name in the right register? Is your name in the register of heaven? If your name is there, if you are his, if you belong to him, if God is your father, your significance is greater than the significance of all the kings and emperors and mighty men of the earth. So because we aren't striving to have our names put in lights, because we aren't pushing and shoving to get to the most prominent place, because we aren't just trying to get ahead, we can receive get this, and even enjoy God's ministry to us through his people for the very first time. See, because what happens is, as long as we are always trying to get to the place of significance, we're either thinking that we're better than the people around us, which it leads to broken fellowship because of my pride, or that we're worse than the people around us, which leads to broken fellowship because I'm going to try so hard to be okay. If we're struggling for significance, if we're vying for the preeminent place for being the greatest one, that's what's going to happen. We're going to have broken fellowship one way or the other. In either case, whether we are trying to be better or whether we're thinking that we're worse, we're really afraid to be vulnerable. We're afraid to listen. We're afraid to receive criticism. And as a result, we're defensive. We're defensive, and our defensiveness keeps us from receiving the benefits that God intends for us to receive right here in this body in the real fellowship of Christ Jesus. Here's what the author of Hebrews says about the purpose for this fellowship. He says, exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. But now think about, and we all can say, yeah, yeah, that's a great thing. We need that. Well, sure, we need that. Think about what the author of Hebrews actually just told you. <laughs> I mean, really, think about that. He just told you, you're going to get what feels like criticism. They don't like me, or they don't like the way I do things. You're going to get what feels like misunderstanding. Perhaps it's well-meaning, but they don't really get it. You're going to get what feels like <clears throat> bossiness. Stay in your lane, man. I don't need you to tell me how to do things. But the author of Hebrews says we need this. Not the, the fleshly manifestations of it, but we're going to need those things that to us do feel like, hey, that's kind of unmerited criticism, or hey, stay in your lane. I'm not sure I really want you to tell me what to do. But we do need it because sin is a liar. And it tells us that we can tolerate these little things that other people can see that we have lost sight of in our own lives. They're called blind spots, the things that we can't see anymore but that your pewmate can. And we need that fellowship. Here's the problem, though. If you're seeking significance, we won't be able to receive it. We won't be able to hear it because we're just too busy defending ourselves, coming up with answers in our own mind. You ever done that? Someone is saying something, or even someone hasn't said something, but you think they might be thinking something about you. 
<laughs> and I'm answering all the reasons why I'm actually okay. Right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm not surely the only one who does that, so uh, I'm going to work on it. Mean, I need to remember that God is my Father, and His approval is enough, but, and His significance is all I need. But this is, this is what we face if we don't deal with this problem, which is answered by God being our Father. God's people are here to tell you the truth about yourself. We see things for each other that we can't ourselves see about what we are. If I have broccoli in my teeth, I would appreciate someone telling me. If my hair is out of place, or even more seriously, if you're detecting a haughty spirit or a loose tongue or misplaced priorities, these are the things that we can do for one another to manifest that we are the father's children in the same family. I just was hearing about what was happening in John Calvin's um, Geneva. And very interestingly, during the time that John Calvin was there in Geneva, the pastors of the city would get together weekly to study the scriptures. They were really serious about making sure they were getting God's word right. And they also would have one of the preachers stand up during this meeting and exposit the word of God. They would have someone preach. That would be a daunting task. You're going to preach in front of all the preachers of Geneva and John Calvin. And, um, and uh, they would preach because guess what? Preachers need to be under the word too under the preaching of the word. So they would do that. But there was more than that. They were in each other's homes, so they actually knew each other. And that meant they could start actually knowing their faults. So they did something else. <laughs> actually, it was a little bit shocking. Every three months, these pastors would gather together to lay themselves open to each other and to ask for critique and where they needed to grow. The only way you can do that is if you're secure enough in your Father's love. It's, it's, um, it's something to receive critique from anyone. To do that in a room full of pastors with John Calvin also present is going to be a fairly stiff pill to swallow. But they were serious and they knew they had a Father in heaven. I recently read an account by Tim Cassie based on a visit he made to Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. This is what he writes. Climbed to the top of Big Kill Devil Hill. From there, the ocean was in view, and seagulls wheeled above and seemed to laugh at the monuments to a 12-second flight. Grass, walking paths, and a magnificent granite monument now adorn it. But when Orville and Wilbur were here, this was just a huge sand dune, 100 feet high. Cassie continues... The Wright brothers started with a clear, simple belief about something that was actually quite unclear and complex. They believed that powered flight was possible. Now listen, I need to put this in my office. They didn't risk everything in order to have their names written in books or inscribed in marble. They risked everything in order to fly. We must take satisfaction in only one thing, do I belong to my father? Am I his child? If the answer is yes, then we have a status and a legacy that surpasses anything that our greatest efforts will ever achieve. We don't have to be worried about the mark that we're making on the sand of time. Our names are indelibly inscribed in heaven. Granite monuments will wear to dust, but the names in the Lamb's book of life will 
never fade. Our Father is asking us to come to Him and in coming to come home. Home to God in whom is all our security and who gives us the chance to trust His absolutely perfect sovereign control so that we don't have to be in control. To come to our God who approves of us through His Son, the Lord Jesus, so that we don't have to fear people anymore because we have the one approval that really matters. To come to our Father, to come home to Him, and to relax in the significance of our Father's love for us from forever. To taste the freedom of getting the chance to pursue the great task instead of trying to build a monument that will surely wear to dust. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father, as we've talked for these moments this morning, as we've shared together in your word, we've really only touched on the very surface of the greatness of the reality of having the God of heaven as our Father. To think, just to think that you, the King, with all of the responsibilities of kingship of the whole universe, has your ear inclined for my slightest, most ineloquent whisper, asking for something so basic as a drink of water is really overwhelming. And we're really grateful. So as your children, we come to you with this petition. Our Father in heaven, would you help us to see you and to cherish your approval more than the approval of people? Would you help us, your children, to come to you and in coming to you to cherish that significance which comes from a relationship with the only God who really matters? more than all the significance that we could achieve for ourselves. We come to you as children and beg for your uh, continued mercy. We appeal for your continued kindness and we say with confidence, we will receive it because through Jesus, we are your children. We give you thanks for this in Jesus' name. Amen.